Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Recently, I attended a small, intimate happy hour hosted in Austin, Texas, with the inventor of the Ethernet, Bob Metcalf. I took stock of how much has happened in the half century since his original Alto Ethernet memo was circulated during his time at the Palo Alto Research Center arm of Xerox. Needless to say, the adoption and monetization of technology innovation takes time. From the release of the memo on May 22, 1973, to the publication of the first website on the internet on August 6, 1991, it took 18 years. At that time, there were an estimated 6 million internet users worldwide. It took another 15 years to reach 1 billion users. My guest today, Renal Manohar, is a CEO and co-founder of Casper Labs, an enterprise blockchain software provider. He and his team are on a mission to build the essential foundation for an entirely new era of digital transformation. Casper Labs specifically built the first layer one blockchain for the skill and operational needs of businesses or governments. As Bob Metcalf quipped prior to his talk, the only difference between being a visionary and being stubborn is whether you're right or not. Renal brings a distinctly precise, methodical approach to entrepreneurship and making sure he is right. An engineer by training, he honed his executive skills first as a junior management consultant and subsequently a private equity associate at Bain Capital. In his words, the experience was invaluable and taught him a rigor that he has since applied throughout his career. As a TMT sector head for a billion dollar hedge fund, he developed a framework to assess the transformational value of technology and built an angel investing portfolio, which led him to Bitcoin and the potential of blockchain. At the end of the day, technology innovation is highly deflationary. It is a cost story. It takes existing economic rents and breaks them down, resulting in a more efficient distribution until the next reconcentration phase occurs. By making information more widely available and its dissemination faster through automation and network connectivity, it allows new entrants to thrive and fosters operational efficiency with incumbents. It will not be easy. According to A16Z's crypto research report, the number of active blockchain developers has retreated from a high of over 36,000 in March 2022 to around 22,000 in the past month. The estimated number of active users across popular crypto mobile wallets has stabilized around 6 million, and more than half of global respondents still believe that blockchain and cryptocurrency are interchangeable terms. Renal holds a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon University and has been passionate about computer science ever since he began programming at age 11. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up all over the world, actually, which is born in India, but my family was already in Hong Kong by that time. So I was in Hong Kong from like ages one till about two or three. And then I spent just under a decade in England and then sometime in Southeast Asia, got my undergrad in India, postgrad in the United States, and I've been here ever since. So tough question to answer. I'm from everywhere, so to speak, which growing up, I was a fairly independent kid. One of my biggest passions when I was a really young kid was Lego and electrical circuits. Like I would build Legos all the time and electrocuted myself quite a few times. I remember when I was seven, I took my battery tester and put it into the wall outlet, which if you think about it, it's pretty stupid, but now seven and I thought, oh, there's electricity there. Battery has electricity. Let me test the wall outlet. <laughs> Blew me up. In addition to be being really interested in building stuff as a kid, was also pretty interested in sports. I swam a lot competitively at times. Was a mountain biker for a long time. Broke a lot of bones. 
jumping things on a bike, much to the chagrin of my mom. Ended up in the hospital a few times for breaking things. And also played guitar. Started playing when I was 11, more into progressive and harder music. I wanted to be a professional musician at one point, actually. I'm not that good anymore because I don't get to practice as much as I did before. Life just got in the way. But yeah, that's me. And now really, really excited to be working in the enterprise software space. No, that's, it's fascinating. I could actually relate to a lot of what you said and have some questions about it because I do believe that everything you described forms the person you eventually became and you have gone down a fairly entrepreneurial path to say the least, right? So the first thing I will ask is, where do you think this appetite for more courageous and extreme forms of sport, like mountain biking, I was big into skateboarding, street skateboarding. So ollieing staircases, grinding down rails, things where you can and will get hurt pretty badly. I've also mountain biked, although I haven't broken bones, but I know that it was always on the limit. Where do you think that appetite comes from? I think in general, humans are anti-fragile. And for some people, exploring that anti-fragility is really, really exciting. The human body and human mind, if you look at some people, are just capable of doing extraordinary things, right? Like Usain Bolt is every day pushing his body to its absolute limit. But anyway, that's not an extreme sport. I think an extreme sport, there's two things are really appealing. One is obviously just the adrenaline rush, because you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, right? You're going down a mountain, and your only contact with it is two dime-sized pieces of rubber. Humans aren't supposed to be doing that. And I think the, the adrenaline rush from, hey, I'm doing something I really, really shouldn't be doing, and seeing things that you don't normally see, right? Like the side of a hill while you're on top of a vehicle is really thrilling. But I think the second thing is, it's also why like role-playing games online are so popular. You're able to see your progress in real time. You keep setting yourself up harder and harder challenges. No one mountain bikes down like a really, really tough run on their first attempt. I mean, you would die. You kind of have to build up to that. And I think that incremental progress and actually seeing the progress in real time is really appealing. Like with a lot of other stuff, like seeing the progress in real time is a little tougher. But with adventure sport, there's literally challenges you cannot do till you get to it. Like even attempting it would be stupid. And I think the combination of the adrenaline and the real-time feedback is just appealing, heady mix. Do you still practice, for example, do you drive fast cars or do you have any activity that comes anywhere close to that mountain biking? When I can, yes. I mean, I live in Manhattan, so I don't drive at all. Like I don't own a car. No one really owns a car here. So I walk a lot. But when I'm on vacation, I drive fast. I usually try to get a fast car and ideally someplace that has a liberal attitude to speed limits. Like Germany's great. Parts of northern Scandinavia are great to drive around. Recently, for my wife's birthday, we took an adventure trip to Iceland. Me and my wife, when we take vacations, we're much more into adventure sport and hiking than, say, lying down by the beach. And we did some really cool snowmobiling there. It was my wife's first time. I've done it a few times. Snowmobiling is also really, really fun. So kind of like mountain biking, except when you fall, it's snow and not a rock. So a little bit better. 
I have injured myself doing that as well. <laughs> and wear it proudly. That's great. And I do believe that, look, it takes a risk tolerance and a pain tolerance that is a little bit on another scale to want to go down the path of being an entrepreneur. And I think there's this new generation, I like to say now I'm, I'm pretty old, but if I look at this newer generation of entrepreneurs, given the market conditions right now, you would think, I mean, I know NASDAQ is creeping up, it's way back up to all-time highs, but that's a very, very thinly traded set of names. For the most part, the, the tech ecosystem, the venture ecosystem is really hurting right now. And it's a difficult environment. And I think a lot of stories out there are finding out the hard way how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. And so that notion of pain tolerance and risk-taking becomes, it's easy to take risk when everything's going up. And it's not as easy when things are not going according to plan. So you like building things also. Big Lego guy, our kid growing up, loved it. Spent hours, countless hours. I remember the one thing I did not have patience for was I love to build and I love to build new things, right? Once I built it out of the box, I took it apart and I built my own things. But I could never have the patience to make it all like one color. I was more about like the design, the architecture, how it worked, but it was like yellow and blue and red. And it was just, it made my parents laugh. What studies did you gravitate towards? Yeah, um, initially I was really fascinated with math and the sciences. Actually, very early on, I'd add history as well. I think history, so I'll start with history and then we'll talk about math and science. I think learning history is really, really important because I think most things are a reiteration or a reformulation of what's happened in the past. So I'll give you an example, right? Like everyone talks about blockchain as if it's this massive change that's coming and unprecedented, which it is. But we have seen big open source or technical shifts before, right? We had Linux becoming a thing and Red Hat were the driver. We saw cloud computing becoming a thing and Amazon was the driver. And if there was no Red Hat or no Amazon, neither of those things would have become a thing. And I think that's what people don't realize. And blockchain is going to become a thing. Like enterprises and governments are going to save so much money on it. But like, it's hard to see that analogy. Like, and I'm just giving a practical example here, right? The reason why all those three things happen, and I'm confident blockchain will happen, is because it saves cost. At the end of the day, that's it. This can excise hundreds of billions of costs, as did cloud computing, as did Linux. And that's why it will eventually be adopted. The only question is, who's going to drive that? Who's going to be the catalyst? Or which set of companies going to be catalyst? So it's always interesting in history because, and I'm giving like a present day example. Like, and when I say history, it's not just which king chopped someone's head off in 1500. It's also more recent history and tech trends. And always as a kid, I've always liked reading history books, not just what was in school, but what happened. And then on the other side, it's math and science. Why I like math and science so much, it goes back to one of your points where you talked about risk and pain tolerance. I agree. Risk and pain tolerance is really important to build things. But what math and science help you do is it allows you to accurately assess risk. Taking risk also means the ability to take risk well. You don't want to take pointless risks. You want to take risks that have asymmetric upside, or you've done the preparation to assuage part of it. And math and science are just amazing tools because they're objective, they're provable, and they're just such a, that 
the method is just applicable across any sets of problems. So I'd say, yeah, like studying, like those are two areas I went toward and, and luckily they've proven useful in decision making. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, for that matter, one of the things I always tell founders when I meet with them and I ask questions, sometimes pointed questions, and the nature of those questions are getting harder as time goes on because I know where to look at for those critical issues to identify early on that pattern recognition is I always tell them the person who should do the most due diligence, in other words, understand their market much better than I will ever, is you. Because you are going to basically devote, dedicate your time, and hence the opportunity cost to this venture. So you're the largest and most important investor in this venture. Because whoever writes you a check, writes a check and they can keep doing whatever else they're doing. You, on the other hand, that is going to be your life. And so the ability to quantify, to your point, not just to bear the pain, but to say, okay, if I go down that path, this is how much pain there will be in expectation, right? If I go down that path, this is how much pain there would be versus what is the upside that I'm seeking. So it makes a ton of sense. And I could see where you're headed with that. Walk us through your career progression. I mean, you have one of the things that has been really good about crypto and blockchain and the advent of this industry is that it's given a chance, especially on in professions that typically required almost like an apprenticeship and that were very gated, like finance, for example. It's given the opportunity to allow people who wouldn't necessarily fit the mold to be able to express themselves, to start businesses, and at times do incredibly well. You have had a fairly, should I say, institutional upbringing as a professional. You've worked for big name companies and you've sort of honed your skills in a very institutional background. Can you talk to us about what was the initial progression there in, in thinking and joining those firms? Yeah, absolutely. So my first internship, which was during my final year of undergrad. So before that, I primarily devoted the summers to fundamental research. So I didn't really do internships. So I was kind of late. But honestly, my plan was to do a PhD. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to go into academia. And so my first internship was with Oracle. And the reason I wanted to go to Oracle is I really wanted to see how these big systems were used in production. I was fairly theoretical when it came to computer science and math, etc. But the internship with Oracle was great. It made me realize, oh, wow, there's these really, like, till you see it in action, it's hard to really comprehend what a big company like Oracle actually does. And so then I understood, like, the real, real power of enterprise-grade technologies. My second internship was with Microsoft. I was a program manager out in Redmond. Funny story, I was actually working for GBI, Global Business Intelligence, which was under Satya Nadella at the time. Now, bear in mind, this was 2007, way before he became CEO and probably one of the most successful CEOs in terms of added market cap in history. But he was essentially the VP of the division I was working at. I doubt he remembers. But I worked at Microsoft for a summer. And then my first job was actually Bain & Company. And it was actually very weird logic there. I was either going to do my PhD or go to Microsoft. And I ended up dropping both when I interviewed with companies like Bain and McKinsey. And it was such a breath 
of fresh air to me because it was a world I absolutely did not understand. I was just this computer geek guy. That's an unfair thing to say, but like that's the way most people would think. Like I was just like the nerdy computer guy. And really, I'd say I was very, very narrowly focused. And what the reason I went to Bain and Company was, hey, I'm not, probably not going to get an opportunity to do this again. Two to three years, that's kind of what they expect. And I can learn a lot about how the world actually works. And honestly, like I should have paid Bain and Company. They shouldn't have paid me. I it was the best free education I ever got. I was working with Fortune 500s, learning the ins and outs of how these large enterprises actually work. Obviously, given my background, it was primarily tech companies. While I was at Bain & Company, I worked a lot on their private equity group, which basically provides due diligence support to large private equity firms. And really, really loved the, hey, you have two to three weeks to really figure out how an entire industry works at least enough to make an investment decision. And I was like, how do people even do that? And doing those processes, I got somewhat of an inkling, but I really didn't understand, okay, how do they price this? How do they figure out how to bid? What does the process look like? And so I joined Bank Capital. I was very fortunate that they hired me. And I'd repeat the same thing there. I was just fortunate that they paid me. I mean, Honestly, for the education I received, I should have paid them. That was better than any university I could have gone to. So learned a lot about how finance works, how to evaluate a technology company, what are the metrics that actually matter, how do you actually generate revenue. After that was my first, I'd say, close to entrepreneurial venture. I was one of the very early employees at Sigard Holdings. At the time, we managed about $150 million AUM. We were a long-only hedge fund. And... I was a sector head for technology, media, and telecom there. When I left the firm, they were managing just about $2 billion Canadian. That was in 2017. They manage about $18 billion today. They've done a killer job. Really, kudos to that team, what they've achieved. Again, same thing. Learned a lot in that experience. But building or being part of the team that helped build that, I was ready for the next entrepreneurial venture. And, you know, I'd been investing in the blockchain space since about 2012. I was an annoying guy in the office, you know, the annoying guy at Bain Capital telling everyone, hey, look, this industry is real. Blockchain's real. We, people haven't figured it out yet, but a Red Hat or an Amazon's going to come like just like they did for Linux and just like they did for cloud computing and revolutionize this industry. And then in 2017, I was just looking to invest in a company that had those characteristics. I couldn't find one. I really, really wanted to invest in the Red Hat for this industry. Since I couldn't find one, I decided I'm going to go start one. Knowing that this is going to be a 10-year adventure, this is not going to be fast. The enterprise sales cycle is slow, but it's going to be a hell of a run. Yeah, that's it. And well, now I'm here. In just under five years at Casper Labs, we incorporate in October of 2018. But the idea for a red hat for this industry i sort of had in august of 2017 i just couldn't find one now and what is really interesting that's why i was very excited to do this podcast with you is the breadth of your perspective right because being on the builder's side now you've done so with a very very clear keen understanding of how investors look at value creation right how that they establish the map towards addressing a market to quantify this market, like one of the things I always encourage people to do at an early stage, even if it's 
relatively theoretical is probably what you did in your interviews going to Bain, what I remember my classmates doing when they were interviewing with McKinsey and BCG and the likes is how many gas stations in the US. What is your thought process is how do you establish model out? Okay, if I'm going out and targeting this, what is the likely outcome of what this market's going to look like five years from now? And by the way, how should I price myself? Even if, again, it's theoretical, you will bump against a lot of your assumptions from the get-go, but developing that discipline, because I do believe that go-to-market, sizing your addressable market in the most realistic and conservative way is critical to starting a business these days and will come at a premium. But you also have, obviously, the coverage and the investment expertise. Now, one thing we didn't elaborate much on is your track record as an angel investor. It's something that you've done for a long time. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you started angel investing? What were the initial resources? And how did you build access to your deal flow? Yeah. Angel investing, I'd say really early. I'd say like 2008, 2009. And really it was, I was just investing any bonuses and free cash. Again, very, very small amounts initially. I just started work, but I wanted to develop the discipline right out the gate. And I was just fortunate when you work at a place like Bain & Company, you just bump into either colleagues or people who are doing really, really interesting things. So most of my deal flow was friends, right? So like Bonobos, for example, was started by ex-Bainies. I put some money into Bonobos. Um, like Warby Parker was started by some Bainies. I put some money in Splendid Spoon was co-founded by a classmate at Bain and Company. So I put some money in. So that's one set. So that's the non-call it blockchain side. And I continue to do that. I come across people, although now that I'm working crazy hours, I'd say I've not made an angel investment in a while. No, that's not true. I did invest both in Burrito Wallet out of Korea for a partner of ours and this really cool game called Beast League. By the way, People should play basically. It's, it's such a blast. Then on the blockchain side specifically, I think I started buying Bitcoin in 2012 because my roommate basically was talking my ear off since 2010. He was my roommate in college. He wasn't my roommate at the time. But he was actually a really, really large Bitcoin miner. Now, bear in mind, in 2010, you needed like a rack of servers to be a big miner. It's not like today where you need an entire warehouse or warehouses. So Basically, I should have listened to him in 2010 and bought some then. But in 2012, he said one thing that changed my outlook, which was, hey, look, this is not about cryptocurrency. Blockchain is way bigger than that. This is the best form of tamper proofing and copy protection that's ever been made. If you think about worldwide GDP, 65% of worldwide GDP is services. The rest is industrials and agriculture, which surprises most people. And of that 65% of GDP, somewhere between 5 to 10% is wasted on just proving the authenticity of things, proving that someone did what they say they did, proving that the origin of something is from where they say it is. You could eliminate all of that, automate it with a tamper-proof technology like blockchain. The reason why digital money didn't exist before was we didn't have an adequate measure of copy protection. That's why songs, videos, all of those got absolutely, those industries got completely disrupted. That's when it hit me. I was like, okay, this industry is really, really serious. This is the next cloud slash Linux. And I just, when Ethereum came along, I thought that was a really evocative idea. So I was there in their seed round. Then Filecoin, Maker, 
just a bunch of early protocols. I thought they were all really, really interesting. And then, of course, my biggest investment has been Casper Lab. Just so you know, I'm not just the founder of it. I have invested alongside my investors every single round, including right now, we're doing one as well. And I'm co-investing with my investor. I think it's important if there are resources that entrepreneurs, even if it's a tiny amount, you know, co-invest along with their investors, it shows a lot of faith, especially like enterprise blockchain is a very misunder. We're not a market that measures standard things like revenue and EBITDA yet, but that's where the industry is headed. That's where like every industry is going to be eventually. And it shows, again, to your point, it's about aligning stakeholder interest and incentives, right? At the end of the day, and it's a great vote of confidence, especially at times when investors could stand on shaky legs or as you and I were discussing earlier, there's headline risk and, and reputational issues. It's really interesting, again, to look at how you have this perspective from both sides, right? And so as you're keenly aware, and you continue to do so, right? I mean, by choosing to invest in your business, you're continuing to have both perspectives, both as an investor and staying true to that and those principles, as well as the operating side. It seems to have been a fairly smooth, at least on the surface, career progression. And before we get into the actual genesis and idea and decompose that on Casper, were there any noteworthy setbacks in your career that helped you grow professionally or personally? Or would you say it was smooth sailing? It was absolutely not smooth sailing. So when you look at the resume or something can appear to be smooth sailing, but it's not. I've faced significant challenges pretty much every state. And look, I don't want to go through a recitation of history, but I'll give two or three like very, very specific examples. When I started at Bain & Company, I'll be honest, I don't think I was great at my job. I mean, I got really good eventually. I mean, otherwise, like career trajectory wouldn't have been where it was. I wasn't very good at my job. I don't think I really understood it. Like I was thinking, hey, my job, I, hey, I'm a consultant. I'm going to give you advice on what you're going to do. Not realizing at the time, the good smack of reality when my manager sat me down and said, dude, you're 22. No one's asking you for your advice. We are going to teach you the tools whereby you can perform analytics, whereby you can help us, more senior people at the firm who have been through this cycle, advise the client. And I think that was very, very helpful. As, as with any job, but you get a really, really good job, sometimes it's hard not to get a little bit full of yourself or arrogant. And I think I unfortunately did a little bit, but it's good to get a bit of a slap to the face and realize, all right, you're not all that. So you kind of got a good first job, but you could get fired in three weeks. And then what was the point of that? You've just been fired by a highly respected organization. I sat down and just worked. The other reason was I also, there were a lot of skills like financial modeling, economics, etc. I was a pure engineer. And so these were just skills that I did not have. And I have to learn a lot of new skills, have an attitude, readjustment, etc. And I'm very glad I did. The most arrogant thing to say is I'm humble and like I, I loathe to say it, but at least that gave me some humility and made me realize stuff. At Bank Capital, I'd say what I really learned is a level of precision because they do a lot of complex financial modeling there. 
another slap to the face there was like in consulting, you can always go like, yeah, we think it's this plus or minus 5%. When you're doing a leverage buyout with 15 debt tranches, etc., every number has to match. The left side of your balance sheet and the right side of your balance sheet have to absolutely match to the penny. Otherwise, it means you've done something wrong somewhere. So like learning that precision was really, really valuable. And knowing when you need to be super precise and when you need to there are some things where you just cannot be precise because the data doesn't. So look, TLDR, every single job I've had, there have been setbacks, stuff has gone wrong. But you know, like my view is more like not, hey, stuff isn't going to go wrong, wrong. It's my view is stuff is always going to go wrong. And the only thing we can do is make sure that we respond to those as well as possible and as thoughtfully as possible. But yeah, TLDR. Lots and lots of setbacks. Uh, this, the, the career is basically lots of scars to get here. No, it's gross. It's awesome to hear you say this. And again, for listeners who might be earlier on in their career, who are going through the apprenticeship, who are going through these obstacles, that they hear it from someone who's traversed, who's journeyed, is obviously very, very helpful. Yeah, it's designed to hurt. Yeah, that's what I'd say to anyone starting their career, right? Like, these jobs are designed to be painful because they're pushing you to contribute at your limit. And I tell everyone like, hey, if it hurts, we've all been through it. it. No one gets through those things without some scars. Hang in there. It's part of the process. Now, and I, and there are times, and I think it also stays fairly ingrained throughout your career. And I'm thankful for these times when, again, whether you're at Bain or you're on a trading desk, your statement about precision couldn't be more accurate, right? It's just you live in this permanent state of the numbers have to match. It's literally zeros and ones, and they have to be where they need to be. The world itself is not deterministic. The world itself is not like that. And so the ability to navigate both, to produce quality work, and to actually have your assumptions, even if they're theoretical, right, and then switch over to a world where that precision doesn't exist. Everything is highly probabilistic is what makes or break ultimately one's career is the ability to navigate that. You actually make an amazing point. Like, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think like one of my mentors put it really, really well to me. He's like, look, you have to know when to be precise and when not to be. So, for example, if you're trying to figure out like, hey, how much do I think people worldwide would pay to have 10% reduction in their HR costs. Now, you can't be super precise about that, but you can get a general idea using comparables, et cetera, what they've paid before. On the other hand, if it's like, okay, if an invest, if my MD at a private equity firm is asking me, okay, 100 million of revenue comes in, show me exactly what happens to every incremental dollar that comes in. There, you want to be as precise as possible, right? You want to be like, okay, Given their current cost structure, this is exactly like what the economics are going to look like. And there you want to be really, really precise. You want to say like, okay, this is the EBITDA number that comes out. Again, there are some assumptions there, but you're being a lot more precise. Or like you said, on a trading desk, your bid and ask, it's got to be right to the cent. And you've got to have calculated it down to the cent. And so knowing, like, sometimes we can get into the path where trying to be perfect could trip us up because... There's just not enough information to be that precise. And we just have to know where to use it. But you made a really, really good point. 
And also the way the person across from you makes decisions and who that person is, whether you're CEO to CEO negotiating something or the person across from you is a customer, a retail customer, their behavior, the way they optimize their incentives might be precise and rational within a completely different set of rules than yours. And so the ability to understand that also is very important, I think. I think I agree with you. I think not just in business, in general, empathy is just good for the world. I think half of the torsion we have in the world is just because of our inability to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. Think about it. Even when you're pitching, let's say you're trying to raise money for a fund and you're having a lot of meetings with limited partners, potential limited partners. You might go into those meetings and think, have been motivated and obsessed with one objective, which is I'm trying to raise money. Like my objective is I want to raise my money. I want to charge management fees and I want to start deploying that capital. I have all these trade ideas. I have all these things that I want to put together. And unless you understand what the motivations, concerns are on the other side of the table, you will never be able to understand what that process looks like and how to successfully conduct it, right? And that perspective is critical, right? And so again, these are not, it's precise. I would even say on some level it's scientific, but it's highly non-deterministic, right? It's something that needs to be assessed with a different set of rules than you might be used to, right? So again, having the agility to think along those lines is very important. I'm going to steal that phrase, Maxime. That was very well put. It's not deterministic, but it can be scientific. That's a good one. Yeah, as any statistician would do. I mean, the science of behavior is, again, statistical in nature, but again, it's not as obvious to understand. And at times may be very counterintuitive. So Casper Labs, you, what is the genesis? Is this something that you sit down and you have this idea with someone else or a group? Is it just you? How does it start? Yeah, it started because I was looking for a red hat in this industry. And I think I should explain what I mean by that. And that's really the genesis. So well, let's go back to the early 90s. Everything that people is saying about blockchain, they were saying about Linux then. They were like, hey, it's open source. This is a bunch of kids and anarchists. This is never going to be a mainstream technology. How the hell do you even make money with free software? There's no business model here. This is never going to result in revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And the product isn't ready for prime time with enterprise. By the way, all of those criticisms at the time were probably legitimate, but people weren't looking at the true like fundamental value here. The value of Linux is it can save people a ton of cost. That's also the value of blockchain. Like I mentioned, 5 to 9% of worldwide GDP is just verifying that things are trustworthy. And we can do that in an automated and intelligent manner using blockchain. And so Red Hat came along and they did two or three amazing things. One, they kind of formalized the open source development in a way that they created a feedback with the enterprises and government. Second, they instead of creating a product in a vacuum, they listened to the enterprises and governments. And as the biggest contributor to the core Linux kernel, they were able to make sure that innovations made it to the underlying Linux protocol. So fast forward, right? 
early 90s, Linux has very low traction. Red Hat is really, really trying to build that traction. And then once they got the product right a few days, a few years in, their revenues went from 5 million to 10 million to 40 million to 100 million. And then they eventually sold to IBM for 34 billion. And that's the story. But more important than that, they created an entire market. Like Linux today is a multi-billion dollar revenue market across the board. And same thing is going to happen in blockchain. But the reason it's not happened is the product and the professional services that are required for blockchain to be used in an enterprise setting haven't been built. And that's where we come in. I couldn't find a Red Hat in the industry, and I just wanted to make sure we built one because the amount of value creation that can come from using blockchain deployments, whether it's track and trace within your supply chain, whether it's auditing, or whether it's trading of otherwise illiquid assets, is just massive. There just hasn't been a company that was built to seize that opportunity. I think just like the internet, cloud computing, lots of things that were viewed as, oh, this is for enthusiasts and retail people. Our view is even enthusiasts and retail folks deserve enterprise-grade products. It's why startups use AWS. It's why startups use Linux. Whether you're a two-person shop built starting a company or you're Walmart, the technology meets your needs. It's enterprise-grade. Enterprise-grade does not mean enterprise-only. That's why we built this, to make sure that we could actually benefit businesses in reducing costs and increasing revenues, which is the point of any technology in the first place. I think your argument around cost reduction, and obviously in a world where we can essentially achieve similar outcomes around tamper-proofing, and, and to your point about the friction that it creates in the marketplace, that, as an economist, I look at that rent that's held captive by intermediaries, right? That essentially fulfill that role, right? When you looked at the breakdown and you talked about the breakdown in GDP, that shared the wallet right now is being absorbed. And so the, the goal here is to take it away or to redistribute it, right? In a way that's potentially more fair, less systemically dangerous or concentrated from a business standpoint in a few players. And I think that's a very compelling value proposition. I think disruptions in economic terms occur when there is redistribution of rent. And I think that's what this stands to achieve. And the more broadly, I think what people misconceive around blockchain is this ability to redistribute rent that's right now concentrated in the hands of few. Oh my God, you are 100% right. Like this is the issue with how blockchain is being viewed. People think, hey, it's this cool technology for enthusiasts. It's all about cryptocurrency. It's all about revenue. It's all about selling digital art. That's part of it. But that's not even the most interesting part of it. The interesting part of it is what you're saying, right? Like there's a mass worldwide GDP, like, I don't know, close to 100 trillion. And five to 9% of that is economic rents on proving something hasn't been tampered with. In fact, every single big technology evolution that's happened has been because of cost. The internet made it cheaper to communicate. Linux made it cheaper to run servers. Cloud computing, you know, aggregated hardware and made it cheaper to do compute. Blockchain make verification, audit, tradability, and track and trace much cheaper. 
And AI is going to make things cheaper by automating processes and giving better decision making. Like all the like three or four big waves we've seen in technical innovation the past couple of decades or three decades or so, it's all been about cost. It's really just redistribution of the economic rent, as you said. And I think in our every industry eventually matures enough to realize that. We as an industry haven't gotten there yet, but it's going to happen. And that's the real value. Agreed. And we need on some level to shift the debate, to shift the arguments more towards that. I think it's critical. We also live in a world where with the way information is propagated and this instant gratification cult that exists, I think everyone's enamored with those big disruption moments. Like we, We're seeing this with AI right now. Everyone's just shifted. And you're seeing all the shillers and having shifted their mindset, all the pivots. What fascinates me is to see diehard like crypto fanatics just starting to shift to AIs as opposed to focusing on, okay, well, what is happening here? Like, what were we doing before? How does it evolve? What does this AI thing mean? It's really interesting, right? So we're looking at these charts where, oh, it took three months for ChatGPT to get to the level where TikTok took a year. Again, don't quote me on the numbers. I'm just, we're enamored with those charts, those disruption charts. I think about blockchain in a very different way. I think we'll wake up 10 years from now and realize that blockchain is powering a lot of what we use on a daily basis. And presumably, some of it will be running your infrastructure based on your strategy. That's the way I look at it. I don't look at it as a aha moment suddenly that everyone is talking about. And at some level, I welcome what is happening right now because it's forcing the space back into the shadows on some level. And it's allowing people to focus on what's at hand and really focusing on making money, right? And creating value back to this redistribution of rent. I want to talk about, I think that's an amazing point. I want to just add two things. First, if you, an industry becomes more valuable when it becomes boring. Everyone was talking about cloud computing early 2010. It was a hot new thing, right? And then everyone's like, oh, we're going to move on to the next thing. Who is actually the worst time to do it? Because the people who held steady, cloud computing today generates $500 billion in revenue annually. And like, say what you want, like, just take a regular revenue multiple of 10x. So that industry is worth $5 trillion, if not more. It was just growing really rapidly. And that's what's happening today, which is crazy exciting, but no one talks about it anymore because it's gone to the background. You're using it every day. Like, if you watched a Netflix video, you use a cloud service. Our current, this podcast is probably being recorded on a Linux server somewhere. So you're using all these technologies every day. And both of those have become multi- tens or hundreds of billions of dollar industries because it became boring. And that's going to happen to blockchain. That's going to happen to AI. The other thing that I want to make is these technologies are complementary. Like I find it very weird when people say, oh, blockchain's over. I'm going to AI. Blockchain's old. First of all, blockchain's only 12 years old and AI is like 30 years old. It's having a moment. But like as with anything, everything's a hockey stick. It's never a straight line. AI is having its hockey stick. Blockchain's yet to have its hockey stick, but it's going to happen. The second thing is AI and blockchain 
are actually the most complementary technologies you can imagine. If you want AI to work properly, you actually need blockchain technology. And if you're interested, I could dive into why. But like, I just find it very strange that people say, oh, I'm not interested in blockchain, I'm going to AI now. I'm like, well, they actually need each other. AI needs blockchain more so than the other way. And I just think that people miss that often. I agree. And I think I can foreshadow where you would be going with that thinking, right? I mean, there's so many, when you look at the management of parameters, the ability to verify and vouch for certain pre-training tuning setups to the results themselves, to the fact that a model's been trained according to a specific data pipeline that it's a part of. All of these things can be recognized, made verifiable on-chain. And so I agree with you. There's a lot of complementarity there. But back to the initial business and the mechanics of setting it up, when you first started, so we see the, the big picture in concrete terms, what did it take to get it started, right? I mean, you said you invested some of your own capital. Were you able to easily find supporters at the time? I mean, if I go back, the time frame is probably right around that initial crypto winter in 2017, 2018, when markets crashed back, right? Yeah, we have a joke internally, which is, how do you know it's a bear market? Casper's doing a fundraise. It's <laughs> like a joke. Of course, we didn't time this on purpose, but every time we've been in the market, it's been a bear market, which we think is a good thing, right? Like that which doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. So yeah, actually incorporating the company, the way it worked was we incorporated on Halloween of 2018, we didn't try to make it rhyme. This was just a happy accident. Uh, but in Casper, Wyoming, just a nod, Casper, Wyoming, Halloween 2018. That way we will never forget when we founded the company. So that's when we founded it. And the initial, call it just over a million dollars, was myself and like the other co-founders. So we basically did the seed round, which kept us good for a few months to hire the first set of engineers. We quickly built up a team of 12, no, 18 people. Yeah. We got to 18 pretty fast. There's a great set of engineers that Meta, my co-founder, knew really well. And that's how the business started. And then we moved straight into Series A. And you're right. It was absolutely the worst market to raise in for two reasons. Reason one, Bitcoin was at like three grand or something. The crypto winter, probably the worst one we've seen in a while. And second, our narrative, right, enterprise blockchain, isn't the popular narrative in the space. Never has been, isn't even the sexy narrative right now. Because people, the industry hasn't matured to the point where people get that, hey, this is all about saving costs, just like it was with cloud, just like it was with Linux. So it was challenging on the crypto side, but that's why most of our investors are very traditional. Like most of the capital we raised, we raised from traditional investors who invest in enterprise software. So fortunately, the pitch resonated with them. So we didn't have any issues to speak. The round took a while to fill, but we did convertible notes along the way. So the capital could continually come in and we could keep growing the team, which is a strategy I would recommend to any first-time entrepreneurs. You know, the early money, give them a little bit of a discount, get it in convertible note. You can do closing later when all of that converts. But if there's capital available, take it. Don't wait if you can, because otherwise you're going to slow down your business and time is the most important thing we have. And so that's how we started. 
you know, we were just fortunate that the message resonated. And then we raised our $14.5 million Series A, which got us through producing the protocol. And then we've had some subsequent financing. One thing that we do at Labs is, again, very traditional company. It's uh, all equity-based. So we really believe in the equity structure because it's a much more long-term structure. And basically, you and your investors sit side by side. There's no disparate economics, which is another like big piece of advice I'd give people. The more you can align your incentives with your investors' incentives, the better. Misalignment of incentives create situations that others can take advantage of. As an investor, I like to look at misaligned incentives at a point in time to realign them, to come in as the realigner. So if you as an entrepreneur give that advice, I think it's a very precious piece of advice to try. And sometimes it's hard because the misalignment can be a function of exogenous forces that were out of your control. But as much as you can control, I mean, endogenously always focus on keeping everyone at the table, at the board level, on the cap table, as aligned as possible in good and bad times, because that is the fundamental underpinning architecture of your business. Now, you glossed over, I say you glossed, the process of building human capital. You have great perspective on financial capital, but you assembled what is a high-quality team, and you went very quickly over, oh, well, you would put together these 18 people and great engineers. That is very hard. Assembling human capital is, on some level, at times, especially in the days that you were out there, assuming you got your first foot in the door and you had some initial capital, and it sounds like you provided the bulk of it with your co-founders. How did you go about building the organization? How did you go about setting the foundation for the business? Yeah. So in the initial stages, it really came down to there were excellent engineers in the blockchain space who had come from the traditional world, like the Googles, Oracles, etc., who were frustrated because their whole goal was, hey, I'm going to come to the blockchain space, try and be an adult in the room and build this in an enterprise grade manner. There were, luckily, I was out there, like between leaving my previous job at Sigard and founding this company, I spent an entire year meeting people. So I knew these engineers and my CTO Meta had worked with many of them my co-founder and CTO at the company Meta had worked with many of them prior. So really, it was that one year of homework in advance to build the initial team. Was your initial team is going to dictate everyone else you hire in the future, right? If you start with low quality, you're not going to like eventually get. And of course, you know, as companies grow, you can attract better and better talent. I'm not saying you have to get the perfect people up front. But doing the homework and being out there is half of it. Right? Like before starting a business, you really should go out and evaluate hey, are there people out there who'd be willing to take the risk and do this with me? Well, at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is taking some risk. And you have to make sure that the appetite is there. So, like, while I would have loved to give like a silver bullet, like, hey, if you're an entrepreneur, do this, I can't. It's really like combined homework. Take the time to understand the market, understand if the product that you want to build actually has an eventual customer. And two, are there other people out there who will do this with me? And if you can verify that, 
you know you have the right idea, and that's when you execute. So like while the company started in Halloween of 2018, the homework started 11 months before that. And so, you know, by the time we incorporated, we knew who our first 15 hires were going to be. Like the initial set of people at the table, who they're, which of course in the beginning was mostly just engineers. Actually, almost 100% engineers, because while I'm a businessman, I think I like to think I'm an engineer. So, would you say that your thoughtful approach to planning, essentially engineering the organization from the get go, stems from your own mindset, right? And is it something where do you think that the fact that on some level you had a little bit more flexibility? It sounds like I always think about the initial startup I have, and I keep using this in my podcast because I'm a big fan, the Spotify biopic, when you watch that, essentially depicting the early days of Spotify, you see Daniel sitting at a desk in a tiny little apartment in Sweden in his underwear and eating pizza and just bad food and just frantically typing away and coding and optimizing his SEOs and that's what I think when I think about the vision that most people have of the early days. The way you're describing is much more surgical, right? It's like you are a management consultant, then you work at a hedge fund. You're very diligent. You identify this opportunity. You've got this plan. You see the vision 10 years and you take your time. Presumably, you have a little more resources than Daniel had at the time. And that allows you to plan, right? And to set the stage for the initial build out, right? Yeah. Do you think that's common as a path, or do you think you were in a slightly, I would say, better position than the average entrepreneur? I was in a slightly better position, but I do want to address that comment because I think it's very, very important. Yeah, I was in a better position, but bear in mind, look, I'm 38 now. And when I founded the company, I was 34. So I was not going into it. Like, I wasn't a young person, right? Like, I already had like 15 years of experience. And so, and I had a career. But let's go back to your point. Being scrappy and saving is the most important thing you can do. Like the reason I had flexibility was I started saving from day one and I kept a very, very low expense footprint, which I maintain to this day. Like I'm not really motivated by money. I mean, you need it to pay for food, et cetera. So I'll give you an example. I live in a 700 square foot apartment in New York. Well, that's all I need. I could potentially afford much more, but I don't because you have to stay grounded and you have to keep your expense ratio as low as possible. Because trust me, a rainy day is going to come and having something left aside for a rainy day is really important. And the reason I was able to do those resources is like, as I mentioned, I kept my expenses really, really low at my first job. Every incremental dollar was invested. Most of it very, very safely and very, very non-risky things. Like I was always maxing out my 401k and, you know, with spare cash, a basket of safe long-term stocks. And then, you know, some angel investments, which luckily paid off uh, really well for me. But even if they don't, even if they're not hundred baggers and stuff, just that accumulated return. Equities have historically always returned about 7%. If you're saving consistently and you're earning that 7%, you have that little bit for a rainy day. 
you don't need a lot. Like even if it's like 30K, 50K, you're like, hey, you know what? I have this in savings. I can forego a salary for four months. Even having those little elements of flexibility can be a complete life changer. So while I was in a fortunate position because I started at 34, it was because of actions I took in my 20s, really, really saving. I just give this advice in general, especially to people is always think about opportunity cost of capital and that Ferrari, driving that Ferrari might feel really, really good, but having a couple of hundred K around to help your business is way more valuable. Living in the 20 bedroom mansion might seem like a great thing, but we just need a place to sleep. And as long as it's clean, comfortable, et cetera, that's enough. I really believe in, if this is what you're doing, keep your resources for your business and for a rainy day. So yes, I was lucky, but I would say to everyone, keep your expenses as low as possible. I'm sure there's an element of luck in, in your progression, but it doesn't seem to be the first thing that pops to mind. I mean, clearly the work and the diligence applied to a set of steps along the way is pretty evident. Although, Maxi, like, but I don't want to make it sound like, like I said early on, right? When you said, ask me like, hey, was it like a straight line or were there setbacks? Look, even with a methodical, diligent approach, you're going to get stuff wrong. I've got a lot of stuff epically wrong. The only thing you do with that is figure out how to fix it, right? You can't cry over spilt milk. But I just want to say that, right? Because some people assume you tell them like, hey, if you're diligent and you plan stuff, things will go well. They're not going to go well. What they'll do, it doesn't guarantee that they'll go well. What it does is it could help you avoid catastrophes. And when stuff isn't going well, at least you have a logic path to assess and figure out what to do next. It goes back to the early stages of our conversation where you said, well, having a thoughtful numbers-driven approach allows you to measure and assess the risk, right? And so planning is also about risk management, right? So yes. And second thing is, to our earlier point as well, it's not deterministic. There's a distribution of outcomes, and it's actually multidimensional, right? And so, although the mind can't really visualize a highly dimensional probability distribution, that's really what life is all about, right? That's what a neural network does, right? It captures essentially what that multidimensional paradigm is, conditional on an information set known today, right? And so, that's really what happens. And so, it's never a straight line. It's never deterministic. But try to do 100% of what you think you're supposed to do, right? Because then if things go wrong, two things happen. One is you're not going to be surprised as to the outcome. You might be surprised as to what went wrong, but at least you're not going to be caught empty-handed or in a position where you're wrong-footed, right? And that will allow you to proceed better with the next step, right? And so... It's again, it's accepting in trading, it's very much the same. Like, as you know, you've been a public market investor as well as a private investor. In trading, things will go the way they go, right? There is no way. And it's it's actually very hard when you've grown to study like again, highly deterministic sciences as your backbone. Whereas someone who's used to the concept of draws, right, is going to be much more comfortable with this like it's almost like a dance with outcomes. It's like understanding that what it is not going to be a straight line. As much as you want your PL to be a straight line up, it won't be. And so knowing how to plan ahead for that being the set of rules that you're dealing with is very, very important. Yeah, I agree. I can't remember who said it, who said like, 
life isn't a straight line. It's a bunch of hockey sticks and asymptotes. And I can't remember who it was, but I just found that like a really interesting and a really good point. So what do you think of the state of the world right now? Talk to us a little bit about, obviously, you have to be in this for the long haul, right? You're, you know, there's a saying that says being early is the same thing as being wrong, right? It's like, do you wake up certain days and think, gosh, this is costly and I think we might be too early? I wouldn't put it that way. I do say over time, so we always anticipated just with any other big technology shift that there's going to be a level of education required. Like there was a reason people didn't use cloud computing, right? Everyone thought, oh my God, Amazon can see everything I have. Why would I let them do that? Which, which isn't the truth of actually how cloud computing works. So, and right now it's like, oh, cryptocurrency is just a bunch of anarchist libertarians trying to bring down the government. And it's a bad, like people misunderstand what blockchain technology is all about and what the value to enterprise and government can be. So there are days when I wake up and I'm always thinking about like, okay, how do we tune how we're educating enterprises to understand the real value of this? I don't think we're too early because we did do a survey, as in we didn't do it. We commissioned Zogby, which is a third party to do it. And two really surprising things came out. 87% of CIOs and CTOs, or C-level executives, all want to deploy blockchain technology in 2023 or 2024. But amongst them, a large majority don't know what they want to use it for. So there is top-down, like, hey, this technology apparently can do a lot. But also there's a B of, yeah, but I'm not exactly sure how. And that's where education comes in. Going back, and I know I've used this example so many times, a big part of what Red Hat and Amazon did in making Linux and cloud computing happen was educating the market. And that's really, really important. This is a technology that is vastly misunderstood and needs a lot of education. So yeah, I don't think we're too early. People actually do want to adopt this. Hardware's fast enough that it's viable. All the things are in place. But I think the education element, which some people thought might take two to three months, might be a bit longer. But, you know, we structured for the long haul. We always realize that. Fortunately, we've had really good traction to date. And I think going forward, fingers crossed, even more so. It's important to take the long view, especially when you're essentially laying the groundwork for an infrastructure foundation layer, right? And we all know that it's going to be very capital intensive. By definition, when you talk about educating the market, that is a long view and long haul strategy. And the important thing along the way, I mean, I think the extreme case of this is Amazon, right? If you think about the conviction from the get-go in saying and knowing, right, that ultimately this is how it's going to play out, that the effort is worth the weight, it's worth the education cost. And again, I think it boils down to having the wherewithal and the resources to be able to capture the mindshare today along the way in tomorrow, right? So all these obviously are a function of having capital readily available, being parsimonious along the way, which is your philosophy. And eventually you're able to capture this optionality to the upside, right? This continuity, right? 
but it's a patient game. So I think the takeaway for people listening is really around the nature of what it is that you're embarking on. One thing that comes across in our conversation is a high level of conviction in these underlying long-term infrastructural trends on your part, right? And I think it probably comes from, again, your formative years, both as a consultant, looking at markets, and then as an investor. And that level of conviction is very important because if you're not operating at that level, it's going to be a very, very tough journey, right? Because it's very long and it's going to be an arduous path. Not every business follows that path regardless, right? It's important for people who start businesses who have a business idea to understand which bucket they fall into, right? Because it's also going to take very different execution patterns along the way. Some businesses are actually at a much faster acceleration curve, and their challenge is different. Their challenge is one where they're likely to grow really fast because you've identified a product market fit fairly quickly. Your challenge is going to be to sustain growth, and that's a function of have you estimated the market properly from the get-go? And then secondly, are you executing properly? So it's a different situation than the one you're in because presumably even looking at your foundational layer here, like you've been thoughtful along the way, right? And the rhythm that you're going out in the market with is a very different one, right? On some level, it's fairly different from a lot of venture development paths that one would see, right? I suspect that once things actually start materializing, your upside will occur in a very rapid way but it's going to be a delayed process. It's not one of those hit the ground running really fast and then plateau out and trying to figure out what your next step is. So I think it's important, again, for listeners when they're sitting there and laying out their business plan and thinking through this is like, which bucket do they fall into? And understand that it's going to take two very different approaches to running the business in the early days. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It depends on what kind of market you're going after, right? And look, we're going after infrastructure, which is the analogy I like to use. I think what you're saying is right, right? Some businesses are like you're selling hot dogs or selling coffee. Like it's a very quick, high volume business. It happens fast. There's a lot of transactions. Our business is more like building a road or building a highway. It takes a lot of effort. You have to listen to everyone. You have to make sure everyone's needs. But once a road is there, you know, there's tons of traffic on it all the time. It's a lot of upfront, but like once it's buzzing, it just takes off. And so, yeah, a business like ours is much more prone to like no business is ever a straight line. It's always hockey sticks and asymptotes, but infrastructure. And we saw this with Amazon. We saw this with Red Hat. We've seen this with OpenAI. It's hockey sticks and asymptotes for infrastructure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Depending on the nature of your business, our strategy might not be the right one, but very, very convinced that if for what we're trying to do, you really need to be long-term focused because our customers are long-term focused. So you have to align your design with theirs. What are the things that keep you up at night aside from, again, the your anticipated life cycle of what this venture is going to take to succeed? What are the things that are keeping you alert and aware and thinking about your comment earlier about assessing and measuring the risk. Yeah, the one thing that the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is miseducation or misinformation in general. 
we've seen this across the world, like misinformation can lead to people completely misunderstanding a market, a political position, a war, whatever. But I think what keeps me up at night is our industry doesn't have like, as an industry, we've not done a great job of educating everyone about what this technology actually is. So like what keeps me up at night is just that, hey, like, are we going to continually be in a state where everyone is confused? How are we going to be the ones who educate the market? Look, it keeps me up at night more so in the, how would I, I'm trying to think of the adept way to phrase this. Okay, let me start with, I'm 100% confident in the thesis, meaning someone is going to figure out enterprise and government use of blockchain and build a behemoth. Someone is. The question is, is it like, are we the ones who are going to do that education right? And so far, proof points, like, I think so. But you always have to look around and make sure that you're doing it right. The other thing I will say, like, why I don't, like, get too hung up on it is even if you take Linux, right, a Linux or cloud, yeah, Red Hat and Amazon took most of it. But neither of those were winner-take-all markets, right? Like, Amazon makes, I don't know, 100 billion or some crazy number in cloud computing. But so does Google Cloud. So does Microsoft. So do startups like Snowflake. So does Workday. Like, there are all these cloud-based companies that do this infrastructure that did really, really well. It's not always a winner-take-all. So that's why, like, I'm not, like, that fussed about it can still have extremely large businesses. And, you know, all the companies I named, Snowflake, Workday, et cetera, they're all like 50, 60 billion dollar companies. Yeah, so like what keeps me up is mostly the education thing. I think of all the big technical innovations I've seen, blockchain is the most misunderstood. Everyone thinks it's about cryptocurrency, which is an application of the tamper-proofing and security that blockchain gives. But it's just one of many applications and might not even be the most interesting one. What do you feel you haven't accomplished yet? Making people realize that blockchain is really a cost play. Like, just like cloud, just like AI, just like Linux, it's a cost play. And I don't think we've done that yet. But that's what we're working on. We want to make sure people realize that. Yeah, there's revenue elements, there's a coolness factor, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the real business of it is all about cost. No enterprise or government doesn't do something if they're convinced it'll reduce cost. The effect is immediate, right? Revenue takes time. Cost is immediate. Like if I say, hey, I can install this and you will save $4 million a year. There is no enterprise that wouldn't do that. If the cost saving exceeds what they're paying for it by a significant margin, they will do it. It's just economics 101. So yeah, that's what we've not, we're doing it. And we've seen early traction, you know, with IBM big Fortune 500s and governments. And, you know, we talk about them, Davos all the time. But what we've not done is like the narrative out there is blockchain is cryptocurrency, which is a wrong narrative. And what we've not done yet is no, blockchain is uh, just a great infrastructure technology that can save a bunch of cost. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges, obviously, is if you were a business, like if you talk to a founder or CEO running a company, it's growing 100% a year. It's very unlikely they understand anything below that top line line item on the income statement, right? They don't even think about gross margins. And that's why, and forget about anything that's below that, right? And so that's why when they hit an air pocket, it takes 
a lot of work for them to retool their thinking, right? Start going down the income statement, figuring out, okay, what's going on here? What's going wrong? The reason I'm saying this is if you're growing 100%, you're not focused on costs. By construction, your argument, the infrastructural argument, the cost savings argument, the rent redistribution argument is better suited to organizations that are not growing fast and hence need to look at the cost side of the equation, right? But inherently, those organizations are more conservative because they're later down the path, right? And so what makes an organization that's growing 100% a year aggressive, innovative, forward-thinking, less focused on cost, the enterprise is going to be hard to sell because they're on some level, they're stuck in their own ways, right? And I think that is why one needs to be patient and figure out exactly, there have been different paths towards that, right? I mean, people forget that Salesforce actually started in the SMB space, right? Yeah. Salesforce started selling to small and medium-sized businesses because the enterprise sales cycle was just a killer. Number one, they were one of the first proponents of deploying on the cloud. At the time they were going out, people forget this. The trust factor was a huge, huge issue. Security, compliance, encryption, all these things. These were days where people were still hesitant to bank online. Like It's easy to forget this, right? So for them... They went and actually targeted, even though I think Mark's long-term game plan was an infrastructure play and moving up the enterprise stack. Initially, he couldn't crack that. He knew he couldn't crack that, right? So I'm wondering here, and this is an open question, is what is the similar play here? Because trying to convince the most conservative organizations, yet the ones that need most of the cost saving is a hardest path. So I'm wondering what your thought process is on that. Yeah, so our thought process was you have to go to market with a combined offering with a systems integrator. Think about it. A blockchain deployment, it has stuff that requires blockchain expertise, but it also requires expertise in linking your ERP system to it, linking your database, doing the UX, et cetera. Now, who's good at all that? So we're great at all the blockchain stuff. Who's great at all that other stuff? The IBMs, the Accentures, the Ernst & Youngs, they're who are really, really good at that stuff. Our go-to-market is we go into market with systems integrators all the time. We built the largest patent marketplace, which will be going live later this year. We did that with IBM. So IBM, all the other work, we did all the blockchain work. We're actually pitching some governments and some other entities. And that combined sales force is really, really good because you get the credibility of the SI who they've vetted the technology, et cetera. And you can go in with a real professional offering to end use. I think like what people should realize in this industry is we should not be saying, oh, yeah, we are going to build a tech stack onto itself. The old world is gone. That's problematic. It's actually, no, the old world can be moved toward our position, which is let's use technologies that are more transparent and more tamper-proof. And hey, look, even IBM is on board with it. And so that's been our strategy, which is kind of, it took Red Hat a while to adopt that strategy. And obviously we have the benefit of hindsight being 2020. But if you think about it, Linux is primarily resold by the IBM. You know, the biggest reseller of Linux right now is Microsoft of all companies. Literally, there's more copies of Linux sold by Microsoft than any other company on the planet. 
similarly, like Amazon too and cloud, they worked with a lot of these systems integrators like Accenture and PwC and the IBMs to go out and say, hey, we're going to give you a full tech offering that includes a cloud component that can save you lots of costs on your infrastructure. And we're only going to put non-sensitive stuff up there. And combination of doing that strategy where you're working with a systems integrator is how you can accelerate the enterprise and government deployment. And then, of course, you want to work with analyst coverage, et cetera, to counteract prevailing and probably inaccurate views of the industry. I hope that answered the question. No, it does. Look, I mean, there is no silver bullet. I mean, it's down to the grind and the execution, right? And on some level, like be able to, again, capture mind share and, and differentiate. 100%. And it's a function of time and money at the end of the day, right? Yeah, I mean, other than killing vampires, you know, like silver bullets don't actually exist, right? Like there's never like, oh, do this one thing and your business will thrive. It's not like that. It's, it's usually a lot of things that you need to get right. It's a worthy task. And I think the fact that you're carrying that torch is setting an example. I think the way you're going about it is one that clearly ties back to your own background, right? That is much more rooted in the opportunity the potential, having thought about, well, if you play your cards right, and if you've gotten this long-term view right, then you are going to make an impact, right? And it's an impact that is tangible in a recognition of those cost savings. So what I detected throughout our conversation today, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, is, is a very different approach than many folks I talk to in the space who might not be as deeply rooted in first principles as you are, right? And I think it stems, again, from your engineering mindset, which is apparent in how you articulate and think about things, but also your training leading up to that point. And that's why I like to start these conversations with someone's DNA, really, because it tells you a lot about how they're going to approach a problem. Clearly, it's an ambitious problem to solve, but someone has to do it. You're not the only one. There are a few out there. But certainly, I want to give you a lot of credit for taking on this mission and applying, again, rigorous thinking and seeing where the true opportunity is without the glamour, without the hopium that everyone is sort of hanging on to. And I think it's so important for this technology to thrive and start solving real problems to kind of move away from these debates that we see too often in the crypto Twitter space and sometimes acrimonious. I think we all need to align around what are the benefits, and you've outlined this very, very clear. So I want to thank you very much for doing this. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Wish you all the best of luck to continue building against what is a difficult environment, but it needs people with a focused mindset such as yours. Thank you, Maxime. And really, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot from it, actually. It was great speaking with you. And Happy to be back on the show if there's uh, if I can ever be helpful or if there's uh, any place I can be useful to you or your community, let me know. We're all in this together. Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.